Hi, and welcome to Independent Claws, your anthropomorphic writing and literature podcast. Episode 4, Like and Subscribe. Today I want to talk about something tangentially related to the craft of writing that we don't always remember to do. It's something that can possibly be of more help to an author than even purchasing their work. What am I talking about? Reviewing. It's one of the most important things you can do for small press and self-published authors, along with signal-boosting their work, and yet most of us do it so seldom. It's also something that is highly individual and infused with opinion, so, as always, please take anything I say under advisement and not as a pronouncement of gospel. On sites like Amazon or the other ebook sites, writing reviews actually improves the chances of the work in question being seen by more people. The site algorithms that generate suggestions and newsletters get a bump for people leaving reviews. Even if you don't have much to say, the act of reviewing can actually provide a boost. But that's not all. Reviewing is a way to give potential readers an idea of whether they'll like a book or story. Now, a star rating is one thing, but the most helpful reviews, as I would hope would be obvious, are the sort that offer up some details so that the person reading it can make a better informed decision. Now, why am I telling you all of these things that you probably, at least in the back of your mind, already know? Well, for a few reasons. One, I think it's very important to lay some groundwork rationale behind what I'm about to talk about. Without a firm idea of why reviews matter, then the rest of the podcast might as well be so much Charlie Brown teacher droning. Two, as obvious as these things may seem to some people, they aren't obvious to others, and from my perspective, they're important tenets to be aware of. Before I get too far into the weeds on this topic, I'll just go over a sample review using an article-style review as a guide. So, what should you include in your review? Well, the core information, the clinical stuff, absolutely needs to be present. Story title, uh, length, its genre, the author's name. You'd be surprised how often I've seen that left out. Beyond that, some suggestions would include who are the main character or main characters? What do they do in the story? Do they encounter challenges? Do those challenges actually cause them difficulty? Are the characters believable? Are the characters relatable? This is different from believable, which I will cover a bit later in the podcast. Does the story deliver on its promises? How does the story structure hold up? If you don't know a great deal about story structure, there are lots of websites that can give you the basics, and volumes have been written on story analysis. Your opinions. Did you like the book? Did you dislike it? Why? This is something that too many people fall down on. It's perfectly acceptable to simply dislike something, or to simply like it, for no other reason than, well, I just do. However, if you are going to review it and commit that time, and expect the time of other people to read your review, you need to articulate the why. Construct for your reader a compelling argument for your point of view, because I said so is not a good reason. Commenting on any recurring themes or motifs in the book, this is a little more advanced, but as you read more and more, you start to pick up on things. Uh, and it's often very good to mention that. Did you like the book? 
Uh, did you have a favorite or least favorite part, and why? Would you recommend this book to others? Now, you'll notice in that list that nowhere did I recommend summarizing the book. While you should definitely give the elevator pitch description of plot, as well as reference events within the story to make your points, that is very different from a simple summary. Any details you include for reference in your review need to be absolutely accurate, too. You'll not be taken seriously as a credible reviewer if you get your facts wrong. And when presenting a viewpoint that is opinion, credibility is the coin of the realm. When you give a summary as opposed to a detailed review, you are taking away word space that could be used to delve into the analysis of the text. Now, not every story bears up to deep analysis, but there's always some of that. So rather than summarize, if you reference just certain scenes and give a general overview, not only will you have more word space to dedicate to your analysis and to your opinions, but you will also fail to run afoul of the spoiler crowd. Now, I am not, as many people who follow me know, uh, very strict about spoilers. I don't care. I find the journey, the process of reading the analysis of how a story was put together to get to a particular ending or plot point to be just as amazing as simply being surprised. However, I acknowledge that most people these days do not want to hear anything about a story or any piece of media, and you have to keep that in mind. It's courteous. You should also be especially careful in the way you express your dislike of a story or parts of it. Under most circumstances, remember that you are reviewing so that others can get a sense of whether they would be interested in reading the work in question. While in a large market this matters much less, see reviewers like The Nostalgia Critic, Cinema Snob, James Rolfe the Angry Video Game Nerd. In small or niche markets, a review that is designed not to guide potential consumers, but instead to make yourself look good as you tell mean-spirited jokes, both misses the point and has the potential to cause serious harm to an author's sales. Above all else, the key to writing a successful review is your justification of your opinion. You disliked it, but why? Did the third act feel rushed? Were there promises made early in the work that were forgotten or not honored by the author by the end? Did characters' actions not feel as if they had any weight or stakes behind them? You're absolutely allowed to like or dislike anything you please. If you're going to review, though, you should be able to articulate why. So let's talk about the various types of reviews, what they are, and what they can mean. First, there is the simple star rating. This is the bare minimum of review. You'll mostly find this sort of thing on sites like Amazon and Goodreads. There's not a lot to say here except that if you are only going to give a star rating, make sure you understand the scale being used. Goodreads three stars means a little bit different than three stars on another site. I usually don't advocate for star-only reviewing, but I do it very often myself. So to say don't do that would be a little bit hypocritical. 
uh, in particular, I will do it if I don't have a great deal to say about a work. Second, or a little more involved, those are the on-site reviews. These are the reviews that show up on Amazon or on Fur Planet's website on the same page as the book is being displayed for sale. This kind of review is potentially going to have the greatest impact on sales because it is most likely to be seen by people considering a purchase. No matter how high profile your book review is, I don't care if you make the New York Times book review section, more people will see it on the Amazon page for that book than they will ever see it in the New York Times. Third is the professional, quote-unquote, professional style review. These are article-length pieces that are published on a blog or on a website dedicated to this sort of journalism. They are where critics have the space to analyze and critique a work at a much higher level and in more detail than a review on the bookseller's website would demand. Now, these aren't hard and fast distinctions, of course. It's your review. You can post at what level of detail you want to where you want. It does, though, pay to bear in mind your audience and what they are likely to expect. The level of detail in your review is also going to depend on how you read the book. If you are a page-turning pleasure reader, don't take notes, and rely on your emotions and memory to get the review written, your review will have a lower level of specificity than someone who takes notes during reading, marking pages to revisit for the review, etc. I myself, like most people I suspect, am generally a pleasure reader first. I don't do as many book reviews as I should, because when I do, I tend to plow ahead when I read and not make notes. When I do go to review a book, I often have to flip back through it to try and locate examples of what I'm talking about or to recall some important detail that has escaped me. What I would recommend is that as you read, you take at least a few notes along the way, and maybe a few questions to note as they come up, such as, this feels like a big deal, and the setup to something major, does it pay off? Which you can then answer when you have finished the book. Regardless of the style or the detail of your review, the most important thing, above any other consideration, is that your reader be able to trust that your opinion comes from an honest place, and that you know what you're talking about. That's my major reason for recommending taking at least some notes. If you don't, and you rely on memory, and you misremember key facts about a book or story, your credibility suffers a major blow. Now, perhaps that's not a fatal blow, but it will hamstring you when the reader gets to any point at which you have to tie things together with subjective conjecture or discuss metaphor or meaning. If you can't get fundamentals of a story correct, then you can't be trusted with deeper analysis. Some articles I've read recommend that you do not review books by authors you know, authors you hate, or authors you love. Under normal circumstances, I would absolutely agree with all of this. In the context of niche markets, I think it deserves some qualification. I think you should absolutely be willing, in a small community, to review works by people you know. When it comes to anthropomorphic literature, if I followed that rule, I would almost never review a thing. Upfront, disclosure is going to be important. Your reader needs to know that you know or work with or are friends with the author in question. It goes towards the idea that credibility that I mentioned earlier, credibility is important in general, 
but it is imperative if you are writing a more quote-unquote professional review. As for reviewing authors whose work you love or hate, that one is trickier. There are authors in the confines of the furry fandom whose work I genuinely don't care for, or that makes me outright furious. I find that I must limit my opining on these specific works to in-person discussions. The reason being, one lousy review that is filled with malice, either intentionally or unintentionally, can actually cripple the sales of a book in a very small market. An author like Stephanie Meyer or E.L. James is not going to see a significant drop in sales due to a few negative reviews here and there amid a sea of fan posts and positive response. Stephen King probably sleeps very comfortably on his bed made out of money, despite the fact that Tommyknockers exists and has been trashed by countless reviewers, including me. But if you take a book within the niche of the furry marketplace and you run a piece trashing it, Yahtzee Croshaw or Nostalgia Critic style, and there's a very good chance that that review, if it's published on a high-profile website within the, within the niche, it could absolutely tank a book's sales. And while that might seem satisfying, if it's a book or an author you especially dislike, there is something to be said for the fact that readers do have opportunities to read excerpts before purchasing, and they should probably be trusted in the end to make their own decision, regardless of if it's a decision you would agree with. If you truly hate an author's work, or even the author themselves, ask yourself why you feel the need to review the work. Is it for the sake of the readers, or is it for the sake of your own petty feelings? As a corollary, if you truly dislike an author's work, especially someone who is widely popular in a small market, even if you don't review their work to review it negatively, your comments on social media can actually cause that author problems. There's no reason to be a snarky dick about someone's work just because it's popular. If your opinion is in the minority, then so be it. You don't have to like their work. No one is going to tell you that you have to bow down at the cult of personality that is this author or that artist. No one will tell you that. At least they shouldn't, and if they do, they can be safely ignored. But one or two little snide side remarks are fine. But after a point, when it's very clear who you're talking about and whose work you're denigrating, it becomes very off-putting. And if you are a writer yourself, you don't want to come off that way. And I know I have. In context reviewing, there is one gentleman in the fandom who writes reviews that has in the past gotten things wrong, um, has made a point of reviewing based on criteria that most of the readership don't care about. I'm not going to name him here, because if you followed me long enough or have talked to me long enough, you know who I'm talking about. That doesn't give me the right to constantly snark at them. It would be hypocritical of me to say, you must never do this, because everyone does it. We all want to be part of an in-group, and if that's at the expense of some people, then sometimes we take it to that extreme. I try not to name names, and I try to just ignore it these days. 
But with that said, no matter who you are, you're still in a small pond. And unless you transcend that boundary and start selling to the major leagues and your books turn up in the actual bookstores, the few physical bookstores that remain, you're going to have to interact with that person socially or avoid interacting with them. And if you avoid them and create that liminal space for yourself, you run the risk of causing strife and unnecessary stress in the writing and literature community in the furry fandom, or in any small fandom, really. If there are other fandoms like the furry fandom that create their own content to the extent we do, ultimately, don't review or comment on reviews or on an author's work out of malice. Ultimately, try to phrase it this way, I would say. I definitely don't like this. This author's work is not for me. I don't enjoy that person's work. Those are just fine. What I find not okay, and again, I'm probably guilty of it, and I try not to be, but I am human. What's not okay is, this is absolute shit. Objective shit. Because if you go there, and the rest of your review is written from an academic sort of point of view, where you are making reference to story structure or academic analysis, and you don't separate that, or, or rather, if it takes a hard enough turn into serious opinion land, you're going to send some mixed signals about what type of reviewer you are. And that's the best case scenario. It comes back to credibility. That damages your credibility. Regarding writers that you love, the danger is similar. It's, I feel, a little less pronounced. But still, you need to be aware of your own personal feelings and their role in clouding your judgment. For example, are you willing to gloss over a couple of massive plot holes here and there that actually break the book? Well, maybe you should avoid reviewing that work if you can't review it and mention those and be honest. No one is going to think less of you if you don't review a specific work. Most people don't review anything. It's a better choice if you can't detach yourself a little to just not review. There are books and authors that I will never review because I don't need to. And I know if... For example, Orson Scott Card. I have read Ender's Game. I acknowledge its quality as literature. I have serious issues with it based on articles that I've read since uh, regarding... Uh, there's an article called The Innocent Killer. I forget the author of that article, but you should definitely Google it. I'll try to put it in the show notes. That explains all through the Ender series what we're given, and it cast it in a new light for me. But beyond that, Orson Scott Card is a tremendous anti-gay bigot, and I choose not to provide him with money. I am lucky that the books I have owned by him, I bought used. So I never directly contributed money to him, but I should not review Ender's Game because I have that strong emotional reaction, and I don't know that I could separate it enough. Within the furry fandom, 
there are a lot of anthology books published, and many of the people who are likely to review books have stories in those. Should you review anthologies that you're in? Like everything else, the answer is a qualified maybe. Some people find that to be tacky, regardless of whether or not you review your own work within the anthology. Others think it's fine, and still others fall somewhere in between. My stance is that you can review the individual stories in the anthology, but you should, again, be upfront that you have a story in the anthology, and you should refrain from reviewing your own work. Reviewing your own work as if it were by any other author seriously undermines your own credibility, and let's face it, it looks tacky. This is doubly so if it's not an anthology, if it's your work, if it's your novel. Writing a review of your own novel, even though you will get some signal boost from having a long review on it, in the end it's going to come back and bite you because people see that that looks tacky and they're not perhaps as willing to fork over money. I don't have any hard numbers on this. I'm just going by generally the conflict of interest is too strong. You can't be objective about your own work. If you could, it would be different, but no writer is truly objective about their own work. Most of us hate our own work, and I will believe that until the day I die. One of my favorite furry writers absolutely hates everything he's ever published. And no amount of telling him how much his work has meant to me and how good it is on an objective level from its construction, from its beats, from its story structure will convince him otherwise. So we've talked about reviewing works by writers you know, that you love, that you hate, reviewing your own work, but there's another pitfall, and I don't think it gets enough play when discussing how best to write reviews. And that pitfall is genre. Now, furry, anthropomorphic literature is not its own genre. It is a meta-genre. It layers with others. From fandom publishers alone, there are slice-of-life novels, romance, science fiction, fantasy, and horror stories available. In the past, there's been a cyberpunk anthology, although that one is no longer available. It was the Rainforest Charity Anthology in 2014, I believe. There is currently, as of this recording, a mixed-genre punk anthology in the editing stages. Now, why do I bring up genre? Because there has been, in the past, a bias against so-called genre fiction by mainstream professors of literature or literary critics. They'll say such things as, well, of course Frankenstein isn't science fiction. It's actually good. It's important that we recognize our own biases and try to circumvent them. If you are reviewing a book in a genre that you dislike, be it romance or horror or fantasy or the current du jour paranormal romance, you owe it to your reader and to yourself to at least attempt to understand the conventions of that genre if you're going to comment on them. Remember what I've harped on again and again about credibility being the coin of the realm? If you're going to review a fantasy story and you don't have a great deal of experience with fantasy literature, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the review. It does, however, mean that you should do a bit of background research. If the magic system in a fantasy work bothers you, the pseudo-Latin and wand-waving in Harry Potter drive some people completely mad, 
but you can't articulate why? The answer may lie in looking at how magic is handled in other works. Tolkien's magic is very different from the magic in The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. If you simply just hate magic, and you force yourself to review a work that is chock-full of it, you need to be absolutely upfront with your readers, and you need to make sure that you don't dock points unfairly for that dislike. If you hate that aspect but still got through the story, maybe you should focus on the elements that you didn't come in hating from the outset. If you're going to review horror, it's very readily apparent who is a fan of horror and who is not. And this goes back to something I've said in the past. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast. It goes back to to empathy. A person who lacks a certain degree of empathy will watch a horror movie, and they will discuss how terrible that horror movie was because the characters did something incredibly stupid. For example, the power goes out in the uh, beginning of the third act during the great murder spree of a slasher film. The protagonist goes downstairs in the dark to try to find the fuse box and fix the circuit breaker. Now, those of us watching who have any experience with horror at all understand that this is a very bad idea. We know that there is a rotted, undead corpse of a killer in a shredded jumpsuit and a hockey mask down there waiting just for you to come down so he can kill you. And people judge these movies because the characters act in what they call an unrealistic manner. But as I've said on horror panels before, and in discussions with people who are masters of understanding horror, they may not be Stephen King or, or other horror authors, Peter Straub, but they understand the genre implicitly. And in these discussions, we've talked about it's stupid to us as an audience or as readers because we know what the danger is. We know where the danger is or is likely to be. If you don't, if you're in that situation, what are you going to think? Put it, put it in your own life. The power goes out. You haven't actually seen these murders taking place. You haven't seen anyone being butchered with a machete. You haven't found any bodies. Nothing seems very out of the ordinary. But the power goes out. Are you going to, no, I'm not going downstairs, that's how you get killed. Or are you going to go, well, yeah, I'm a little nervous about going in down there in the dark, but that kind of thing only happens in horror movies. And you're going to go, and you're going to fix the fuse. And in real life, you're going to be fine. In a horror film or a horror novel, you may not come out fine. But the fact is, you don't know what's going to happen. And as far as you're concerned, those things only happen in fiction. So what we see as illogical and stupid actions by the victims in these horror movies, they're not. They're people being normal people. We don't acknowledge that when we complain about the unrealistic nature of it. We don't acknowledge that we would likely do the same thing. Because in their world, they're not aware of it. That is a common trope in horror films and horror novels and horror short stories that I feel 
gets overlooked when we don't give the benefit of the doubt to our authors. Now, there's one thing I haven't said yet. This is a point that comes from Mer Lafferty. She's a sci-fi fantasy author, uh, author of things like The Shambling Guide to New York, which is really fun. Um, and she's a podcaster. She does two podcasts, one of them called I Should Be Writing. The other is Ditch Diggers, which is about the business side of being a writer. And this point is reviews are for readers and potential readers. They're not for the author. And that's something we as authors often forget. Reviewers, too. While I do think that reviews that are critical need to be charitable and constructive, they're not there to provide editorial feedback or story suggestions to the author. They are there to guide potential purchase. If you really need to speak to an author about problems or editorial suggestions, the time to do that is when they've asked you to be a beta reader or when you are editing their work. Or if they've asked you what you thought and you have confirmed that they want that level of critique. Don't just volunteer it, and certainly don't volunteer it if they haven't asked for any critique, because it's published. They're not going to change it. It's not really going to be changeable now. With today's ebooks, that's not necessarily the case, but if you write a book and then go in and do massive changes to it after people have bought it, you're kind of pulling a George Lucas. The, the work, good or bad, should really probably stand on its own unless you do a new edition and it's very clear that it's different from the old one and even then you're going to get the Lucas accusation thrown at you. That's different. But when you talk to an author, it's generally a bad idea to offer unsolicited critique. You can leave a review what you thought of the book, but don't review the book you wish you had written or that you would have written, or that you wish they had written. That's not what the review is for. That's a very good way to really irritate a lot of people, and not only the author, but also other readers. I'm going to break there uh, for this episode's book recommendation. I'm afraid I don't have one that relates to reviewing, so what I will offer up is an older book that is one of my absolute favorite furry anthologies of all time. X. It's an erotic anthology edited by Kyle Gold. It was published by Sofa Wolf Press in 2009. It is comprised of ten stories, each one themed and titled after one of the Ten Commandments. All of the stories are enjoyable, but I definitely want to call out two in particular. Thou shalt not make wrongful use of the name of thy God, by White Yodi, and Thou shalt not kill, by Fuzzwolf. Both of those are intensely emotional experiences, even for this being an erotic anthology. Um, they wrung some of the deepest emotions out of me that I think I've ever experienced when reading a short story. And the purchase price of the book is worth it alone for those two. But there is a story in there by Ryan Campbell under Thou Shalt Not Steal, The, the Moon Thief, there is no back-of-the-book blurb this time, so I'll leave you with just that recommendation. You can pick that up at sofawolf.com. Um, I believe it's still in print. I hope it is. Uh, and you can also order, I think, through Fur Planet if you want, or Rabbit Valley. 
Um, I'm not certain if its availability is an ebook on Bad Dog Books or on Amazon. That's something to look into, but I don't think so. I think it's old enough that it's never been made into an ebook. So you'd have to pick up the um, the ebook version. Also, each story has an illustration, and the illustrations are just wonderful. Uh, and the cover is just very subtle about all of commandments on display. So definitely take a look at that. For now, I had intended to do this episode as both review and critique, but I think I should save critique for another episode when I can devote the full amount of time that it deserves. I may do that next episode, I may wait a while. But for now, I will wrap this up. If you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, or you'd just like to get in touch, uh, you may email me at podcast at chriswilliamsauthor.com or reach out to me on Twitter at Claus Podcast. If you've been following along with the Write-A-Thon, we completed it successfully and raised just over $500 for RAR, the Regional Anthropomorphic Writers Retreat. Now, that was short of our overall goal, but I want to personally thank each and every person who donated. If you want to learn more about RAR, or you'd be interested in donating, even though the Write-A-Thon itself has passed, you can visit www.rar.community to read about the workshop. And there's also a donation button on the site. So that's it. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Please consider leaving a review on whatever podcast medium that you subscribe on. Uh, it really goes a long way towards getting more visibility for the podcast. So if you can just leave a few words, hopefully you enjoy the podcast and can leave those. If you have the feedback, I've given you the email address. I am on iTunes, Google Play Store, and on Blueberry. Hopefully, eventually, I'll make it up on Stitcher and something like Podbean or a few others. Um, those are in the works. But until next time, thank you, and don't let anything stop you from writing.